What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. What's happening in pop culture right now? Dave here with another pod. Going to get into a few things that I like quite a bit here. We have Taeyang's new solo album, Down to Earth, first album in six years. Sugar of BTS's debut album, D-Day. Wrapping up The Mandalorian Season 3 on Disney+, Plus, John Mulaney's new stand-up comedy special, Baby J, on Netflix, and also my 2023 XXL Freshman prediction. So a lot of good stuff here. Hit the link, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. See the links below in the description. Follow the best of 2023 Spotify playlist, and let me know what you're thinking. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Suga's new solo album, D-Day. Suga, a.k.a. August D, his third release under this name, Sugar, the latest BTS artist to release solo project since the planned hiatus break for military service that we all know. And Sugar, you know, like RM, like J Hope, has had a bit of a solo career to this point. So we know what we're going to expect in a certain regard. And I think you kind of get what you expect on D Day from Sugar. You know, Sugar is among the most talented and capable members of BTS, namely as both a producer, dancer, singer, the usual suspects, but also as a rapper. And I think his ability as a rapper is quite interesting because while I've always gravitated more towards RM's rapping style, his sound, his flow, Suga is still a very impressive rapper, especially when it comes to rapping and K-pop. He has a lot of different flows in his bag, he can really diversify that sound. And I think as an artist, he's much very interested in production. So you get all kinds of flourishes and uses of auto-tune and genre switch-ups throughout his solo work. And I think that continues on D-Day. I would say that D-Day is a pretty good listen. I wouldn't ra- raise it to the bar of, say, like RM's Indigo or J-Hope's Jack in the Box, because for me... J- for J-Hope, in his instance, his case, that was like a really like big explosion of creativity that I hadn't seen coming from him. And RM, I think, was doing a lot of really diversifying what he had done to that point as an artist. Even a Jimin, you know, experimenting a bit on his solo album that we just got, you know, rapping for the first time. Sugar, I don't know if I really heard anything on D-Day that I hadn't heard him do before. Not that that's a bad thing at all, but I think it just kind of a mix of expectations. He's just a bit more experienced than the other guys. And in a sense, I think that makes sense. However, you know, for a 32-minute, 10-track album, I think, you know, there is a lot here. You know, just going with the track list now, you know, the title track, D-Day, you know, it's very aggressive sound from Sugar. you know, uh, very heavy use of autotune. Switching that up right into the next song, uh, Hagium, which is a new flow, new rap flow, very hard. I like that one a lot. Track three, a J-Hope on the feature, huh? Uh, pretty solid. You know, I think that one's, you know, kind of a a bit of a, I don't know, like J-Hope doesn't make as big an uh, impression as I'd like on that, but still pretty solid effort from Suga. The fourth track, though, I think is a huge switch up. That's a um, Amigala, A-M-Y, G-D-A-L-A, hard one to say. Um, that's a cool vibe switch up. I mean, it's really high tempo, but a lot of drums and the synths really coming in for the first time. I thought that one was really cool. Um, especially like the way he like kind of like drops in with the rap, you know, um, again, debuting you these flows, switching up his flows halfway through the verse. Like it is a pretty like, uh, multi-layered track. I think that one's really cool. Definitely one of the highlights on D-Day. 
um, the next song after that, SDL, kind of a 2000s vibe for me, the way the drum hits there. Very smooth singing from Sugar. I like that one a lot. Then we have one of the lead singles, People Part 2, featuring IU, of all people, the, you know, the K-pop superstar. I think it's really cool to get BTS collaborating with people outside of the big hit uh, hype, you know, uh, universe, and much like how RM had, you know, some Korean rock stars popping up on songs like Wildflower, getting IU, one of the OGs, one of the biggest artists in the history of Korean music, period. Um, that's a huge pull. And honestly, it's just a really solid duet from the two of them. So I thought that one was pretty cool. I think my favorite song overall would be the next one, though, Polar Night. Just, um, I think that's my favorite rap flow from Sugar on the whole release. You know, the drums sound really cool. The horns popping up in a cool way there. The next song, Enter the Dawn, you have for the first time really these sweeping guitars. Again, really switching up that sound, what you're getting here. You know, from there, you have Snooze with featuring uh, the late composer, Ruki Sakamoto, and then the Korean rocker, Woosung. In the last song, Life Goes On, you know, kind of a continuation play on some past BTS work there. Life Goes On, you know, Sugar, really for the first time on the release, and the last song giving it a much higher pitch, a much higher register, kind of showing you the uh, components of him as a singer. You know, uh, overall, though, I think, even though I wasn't, like, blown away or had anything that didn't really meet my ex- or change my expectations of Sugar, I just think, like, him as an artist, especially when he's, like, in control like this, like, he's a very creative guy, he just gives you as a performer so many flow switch-ups as a rapper and as a producer... Like his ear for production, there's just always layered beats. Like it's always interesting, and even if he's not reinventing the wheel that he was giving you, I just think it's still like pretty compelling and pretty enjoyable. And you know, this is him completing that trilogy. You know, really honing in on a both a feeling of freedom, but also kind of a path forward, a path for growth. Um, pretty interesting release. You know, at this point. We begin the BTS solo albums Fast and Furious, right? We got uh, Suga and Jimin very, very, very close together. Really, now we only have two left. We have V and Jungkook left to go, you know? So in a sense, I think it's really fun that we're getting all these solo albums in rapid succession, speak that's just K-pop in general, but also this from BTS is pretty interesting. And hopefully they all get to that military service soon. We know two of them are starting it now, so... The sooner they get to that, the sooner they can eventually find time to come back together in a few years. So um, I definitely like the group best when they're together. I think most people do. But like I said, Suga has enough compelling aspects to his interests in crafting music that there's always something to enjoy about his music. But uh, yeah, for more K-pop reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Tae Yang's new album, mini album, EP, Down to Earth. His first release in six years, since 2017. First release since completing his military service a long time ago. Tae Yang, of course, one member of Big Bang, the previously biggest group in the history of K-pop. Definitely the forefathers of BTS in many regards, you know, the first group to really make any inroads in success in the United States. Obviously, their resume needs no introduction, but, you know, the group having done their military service a few years back at this point, all in their, you know, early 30s, it's about time for the second act for that group. And we know that 
the second act, uh, you know, the second contract in K-pop is no sure thing, and definitely there's not a lot of long track record with that. And we're seeing, you know, artists continue to, I guess, break that mold more recently. And Taeyang is an example of this. Now signing with the YG subsidiary, the Black Label, currently their premier artist. He signed them as a soloist. And, you know, keeping it in-house, of course, Big Bang is a YG act, but, you know, keeping it, um, I guess, we're still kind of waiting for what the difference is between the Black Label and YG proper. A lot of rumors about Blackpink, perhaps, re-upping their deal and going to the Black Label. We'll see what that means. But for right now, Taeyang is kind of like the big deal with that with that sub-label right now. And this is his first full release on the project, Down to Earth. And, you know, it's a short, quick listen, six songs, 21 minutes. Um, in a sense, given it's been so long since Taehyung has released solo work, I suppose hardcore Big Bang fans probably wish they got a little bit more. But I think for what we got, this is pretty good. Uh, I enjoyed the singles, and I think overall it's a pretty solid listen. Um, right off the bat, I think everyone definitely had their ears perked up for this when in January of this year we had the lead single Vibe come out featuring Jimin of BTS of all people, both Big Bang and BTS collabing in some way definitely unexpected but that was kind of the big flag of, of oh wait this is what's next for big bang because we got a big bang single about a year ago still life you know, their, their comeback single in a certain regard and obviously we know big bang has been through a lot um as a group in terms of you know sungri leaving the group due to all the legal issues he had and and uh i thought a big bang album was coming you know i wasn't expecting just a one-off single than a solo project, but here we are, a solo project from Taeyang. I'm sure G Dragon's got something cooking up soon for us as well. But this is what we got for now. And like I said, Vibe, that lead single. I think it's really fun because both Taeyang and Jimin are two K-pop idols who both can sing and dance really well. Like it's it's basic to say, but they are both like quite talented guys across that spectrum. And kind of putting them together on this, I think really upbeat, but also kind of like a throwback style. Uh, song you know it really sets that vibe it's it's aptly titled i think jimin sounds really good on the track and frankly that kind of uh vibe if you will was what i was hoping to hear more of on jimin's solo album uh than we ended up getting but i think taeyang sounds pretty cool on that and then not only do you have a jimin feature on here but you also have one of the new songs that just came out with the release of down to earth you have shung featuring lisa of blackpink of all people, of course, Blackpink features are very rare in general. This is an in-house uh, collab, Lisa, of course, on YG. But still cool, because, you know, we just don't get Blackpink features all that much. And, you know, I think it's a pretty solid, okay song. Like, Taeyang and Lisa don't have a whole lot to do. It's a pretty down-the-middle hip-hop track. But it's fun. I think the choreography in the music video is pretty fun. Looks cool. Um, I guess my biggest gripe with the song is that i always find it a bit awkward sometimes when lisa is using like colloquial like hip-hop terms like bando for example like it's clearly like not from her experience using that kind of verbiage and i know she's not like writing these songs for the most part but always kind of feels a bit off to me sometimes but still i think the song's pretty fun pretty cool to me though the highlight of this like i think vibe's a lot of fun shooting's pretty fun the highlight, though, in terms of like the best song, I would say, has to be track three, which would be Seed, which is just like a straight up like pure piano ballad. Like the Taeyang's voice on that sounds incredibly strong. 
just the way the song builds out throughout its runtime too. You have this guitar really making its presence felt, the drum tempo throughout. The song really builds, and I think it's really cool and kind of a nice connective tissue to some of the older songs of Taeyang's past that have got a lot of uh, love for kind of being of a similar, you know, similar ilk, kind of like uh, like Eyes, Nose, Lips from like way back, you know. So that's that's definitely my highlight. I think from there, you know, it kind of slows down a bit with the last three songs, Reason, Inspiration, and Nightfall. But, you know, pretty solid, solid return, pretty solid listen. You know, I think just getting a second act from a K-pop idol, especially someone who's had such a long and eventful career like Taeyang has, like any Big Bang member has, uh, it's hard for me to be like super critical on it, even if I don't think this necessarily like reinvents the wheels and we change any expectations for Taeyang or Big Bang. The fact that this seems to be the next step and the, the, the Taeyang for now is the face of the black label, I think that's pretty cool. So I'm curious uh, if we get more at a faster clip. I don't imagine we'll wait another six years for a solo release from Taeyang. We'll see. But uh, that's where we're at now. And let me know how you're feeling about the project. And for more K-pop reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, Walmart Nostalgia? Dave here with a review of The Mandalorian Season 3, the latest entry in the flagship Star Wars series on Disney+. Plus. Wrapped up its third season last week. And I think most people are in agreement that this would be the least successful season of the Mandalorian, definitely an underwhelming one in many regards. Not that there's a lot of things, there's not a lot of things to enjoy. I think there's a lot of things I liked about season three, but it was definitely the most uneven and ultimately the silver lining for me is that this was very clearly a means to an end type season from a storytelling and creative perspective. And I think that's both interesting in a meta sense, but detracts from the overall you know, product you're getting in the moment, which is the Mandalorian Season 3 itself. So a mixed bag overall. I think it's a pretty lukewarm take, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think what's crystallized for me, and I think for many, would be that Dave Filoni and John Favreau, their stewardship of the Mando-verse, you know, the Star Wars Disney Plus sequel trilogy era storytelling mechanism we have here between the Mandalorian the Book of Boba Fett, the forthcoming Ahsoka, and even Star Wars The Bad Batch. These entries in Star Wars storytelling that we're getting, these and th these are setting out to kind of color in Star Wars lore, connect pieces of Star Wars storytelling to one another. Specifically, Mandalorian and Ahsoka, especially Mando right now, we're concerned with the sequel trilogy and tying into The Force Awakens. That gap between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, that is being filled by The Mandalorian, and specifically what's happening here is storytelling sins of the sequel trilogy are being righted, corrected, smoothed over on Disney Plus with these series. And I think that's a really interesting thing to do, because I think, you know, overall reception to the sequel trilogy in the years since its inclusion obviously it's very mixed very polarized we don't have to get into that but the idea to perhaps increase people's perception of those by help filling in the gaps 
is quite interesting to me. It's very similar, I guess, to how the Clone Wars really colored things in between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith and really uh, rounded out the Anakin Skywalker character. It's not a new concept to us Star Wars fans, this, this premise of uh, retroactively fixing something with futures, with more additional storytelling and additional time. Uh, in this case, you know, I think we got a lot of Mandalorian season three was, especially towards the end there, right? Seeing the Imperial Shadow Council, seeing the Imperial Revenant, you know, seeing uh, Hux's dad, seeing Peleleon back in canon in live action, acknowledgments of throne, but also early in the season, seeing the New Republic in its early days, seeing that bureaucratic uh, dirge, that the slowness of its effectiveness, right? We're seeing how the First Order came to be, how it, something how it came to exist in the galaxy and how the New Republic wasn't able to stop it. We haven't seen all of that yet. We've only seen just a, a, a bit, but I think between future Mandalorian seasons, the, now the Mandalorian movie, where we know we're going to be getting directed by Dave Filoni, that'll be concluding all of these shows on the big screen in the years to come. It's kind of clear that's our mission. And I think it's it's kind of cool. I mean, if we're taking place, storytelling's taking place during this time where we know what happens in the future. It's the sequel trilogy. We've already seen that. We know what's going to happen. So the fact that this can at least color some stuff in and make some things more uh, coherent, it's kind of cool, I suppose. You know, we had that episode, which was, I think, a big departure from the Mandalorian storytelling form, the episode on Coruscant, primarily, where we're with Dr. Pershing, call back to previous season, but really spending time with the New Republic and how things, uh, you know, the bureaucracy of reintegrating people that previously worked for the Empire, how things like that went. But also, again, direct ties to Palpatine's uh, pursuit of cloning. We're seeing that on the Bad Batch. We're seeing that on this series. We know where that leads with uh, Rise of Skywalker for good and bad, right? Moff Gideon, again, he's all about the cloning, you know, and, and, and the splicing of things. We're, we're, we're getting the ties into the Strand cast and the, the Snoke of it all. We're, we're filling all of that in. And it's... It's interesting to me, but I don't know how interesting it is to the average viewer, you know, and I think what's the other issue, I think, with Mandalorian Season 3 is that if you're not into it for this, like, hardcore, like, lore dump and lore exposition and lore uh, recontextualization that's going on from Filoni for years now, then you're probably invested in the core appeal of the Mandalorian, which is the story of Din Djarin and Grogu. And the thing with Season 3 is that for really the first time, we took a step back in many instances from that core story of Grogu and Din, spent a lot of time with the other Mandalorians, and then and, and the mission and quest of Bo-Katan, right? And I think what's ultimately happened, at least on live screen, is that the storytelling regarding the Mandalorians as a culture, as a displaced people, and, and, and their, their pursuit of retaking their home world and finding their place in the world, it just hasn't manifested in the most interesting storytelling to me. I don't really vibe with the Mandalorians nearly as much as I was expected to. I think a big part of that is a lot of them are still kind of unnamed characters. They're, a lot of them are just ciphers. Even someone who has an awesome death scene in the penultimate, penultimate episode in Paz Vizsla 
Like Paz wasn't really much of a character. We learned he had a son earlier in the season, and that was a great episode as a one-off episode. That was awesome. Uh, shout out Ragnar. But the Mandalorians as a people, they're just kind of sticking the muds most more often than not. Right? The armor, she's cool. Talks and platitudes. A lot of things we like about Star Wars, of course. But it they're 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 just they're often just kind of buzzkills to me. This is the way. It's just a bit annoying at times, you know, take, never, never taking off your helmet. You know, it, it's not fun to never see anyone's face. But more more, more than anything, like, I don't know. Like, I just, like I said, like, I think this is a means to an end season. I'm kind of happy that, like, we've had the Mandalorian stuff pushed forward now. And those people will be on the show, be a component of the show. But that, like, core conflict has at least a bit passed on at least din and grogu's connection to it has passed on their characters are now in a really great place moving forward even if it was a bit of a slog to get to this point and yeah i just i don't know like i think ultimately like the quest for the dark saber and and, and that mantle as the leader of mandalore just wasn't as fun as i was expecting it to be you know mandalorians are very interesting in legends canon obviously it's very different from what it is now um it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of, it's a bit of a different, different fight, you know, and the Darksaber kind of being uh, destroyed uh, in the finale, or definitely being destroyed, you know, broken and then uh, nuked, basically. Uh, kind of cool. Take it off the board. Like, who cares? You know, move move on. I like it. Um, yeah. I think, like, like moment to moment, there's tons of great stuff. I think it's a really great Grogu season, especially in the second half. Grogu, of course, is a less is more character. You have the immense cuteness of the baby Yoda is ish, you know, like it just Grogu is fun and cute and we love looking at him. And having Grogu be like super OP all the time as this incredibly powerful, desirable force user, right? They have to pick their spots. I think they pick their spots pretty well, right? Like when Grogu's flipping around against the Praetorians, it was awesome. When he uh has the Mandalorian child duel with the paintballs. That was really fun. So then like, when you get to the point where you have the, the finale, right, where there's immense strength, immense power usage from Grogu saving Din and Bo in the process, I think it pays off. It feels good. But he's definitely less is more character. I like the way they brought in IG-11 uh, this season in the beginning, both as Din requesting like a droid that he can count on to go to Mandalore, but then later on paying that off with IG-11 technically being a vessel for Grogu to walk around in, paying way to some excellent Mandalorian humor with Grogu being able to button mash yes and no commands. Very reminiscent of a young uh, child, right? When they learn to say no, that's all they say. Hilarious stuff. Like Again, like I think Grogu, like the humor bits, the cute bits, it's like really like no perfect that they just have an absolute like weapon when it comes to winning you over with stuff, right? Um, I guess, like, you know, like, like an issue for me was, like, IG-11, right? Like, Din needs him to go to the waters of Mandalore. But then, like, the immediate next episode, he goes all the way down there and finds the waters. And, you know, dips his head and renews himself. Like, there's just, like, no build-up to it. That was a bit disappointing to me. Also, like, it's anticlimactic that Din is able to, on a technicality, hand the dark saber mantle back to Bogatan without any bloodshed. It's a bit uh, disappointing to me, you know. 
On the other hand, Moff Gideon only coming back in the second half of the season, still a really effective return. You know, his uh, obsession with kind of fucking up the Mandalorians for his pride, really fun. And, I mean, I mentioned, you know, the Praetorians versus Paz, but Paz's sacrifice is absolutely epic. I think the penultimate episode's a huge, huge W for sure. Um, a lot was made about the episode with Jack Black and Lizzo, which, the cameos aside, the episode didn't really bother me all that much. And I think if the episode was a bit more congruent with the overall storytelling, wouldn't be that big a deal. The issue was that, that the, the plot felt a bit aimless, especially for Grogu and Din, specifically like episode to episode. I think if that was a bit more engaging as a season arc, you wouldn't really care that you happened to see Lizzo and Jack Black for 30 minutes. Like that wasn't that big a deal. Technically, um, of course, early on in the season, we get the Order 66 flashback, learning how Grogu escaped the temple when things went down. And above all else, or against all odds, it was Kaleran Beck, deep putt, deep cut, Ahmad Best, returning to Star Wars in live action. Obviously, I think that's an amazingly kind gesture from Lucasfilm to bring Ahmad Best back in in such an epic and fun way. Of course, I'm my best played Judge Binks in the prequel trilogy, and Best went through a lot during that time, contemplating suicide at one point, a lot of abuse, and really a difficult thing in the fact that he was able to be welcomed back with open arms, and I think really move forward as a person. I think it was really awesome, and he had an absolutely epic scene. We know he didn't. He, he doesn't die. Grogu obviously escapes, so there could be more flashbacks in the seasons to come. Obviously, anything in and around Order 66 or Revenge of the Sith is crack for Star Wars fans, so we will be eagerly anticipating that with Season 4 uh, whenever we get uh, any more breadcrumbs about that. But shout-out Claren Beck. Shout-out Ahmad Best. That was absolutely epic, watching him dual-wield and fuck up some troopers. We love it. Um, yeah, I think... I don't know. Like Overall... I'm feeling real good about Ahsoka. You know, they they tease you with Thrawn at the end there. You know we're getting there. And the Ahsoka trailer looked really good. So in a sense, this felt like a Mandalorian season that kind of had small aims, you know, in terms of narrative accomplishments where, like, the next big piece of juice seems to be with Ahsoka. So a bit disappointing, but we know... I I think I, I feel overall pretty happy with the prospect now that we know that Ahsoka and any potential second or third season of Ahsoka to come, as well as future Mandalorian seasons, we know we're going to be building up to this Mandalorian fill. And it seems pretty clear that Grand Admiral Thrawn will be like that big bad in a certain sense. So I think this has a lot of potential to really wrap up in a really satisfying way in the years to come. So this hopefully will just feel like a speed bump. But at least you can kind of see the plan, see the board, uh, for what it is to this point. But, you know, season three on itself, a disappointing note, but not all that. Let me know how are you feeling about Mandalorian season three, how are you feeling about Ahsoka and Skeleton Crew and Acolyte and all the other Star Wars things we're getting to come. Check out my discussion about all the movies that got announced at Celebration a few weeks back. And for more TV reviews, Subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of John Mulaney's fourth stand-up comedy special, Baby J, out now on Netflix. Mulaney's first special, first like real special since Kid Gorgeous back in 2018. It's been a minute. And of course, this is Mulaney's first special since his very high-profile and public uh, you know, revelation of 
substance abuse issues and his uh, intervention with his famous friends, going to rehab, getting divorced, getting into a high-profile relationship with Olivia Munn, having a child. A lot's going on in Mulaney's life, and he gets into a lot of that on this special Baby J. You know, I think, in a sense, hearing Mulaney get into what's been going on in his, li- his life that we know about to some extent it's kind of the appeal of this specific special that's just came out, Baby J, kind of similar to everyone's interest in the latest Chris Rock special. Different reasons, but the kind of rubbernecking uh, appeal is still there. And I think, you know, Mulaney's special, I wouldn't call it the, the funniest stand-up special because it's not really like a laughs-per-minute type special that's really not how it's written this is really more interested in being that self-reflective introspective peeling back the curtain style that of course is a hallmark of stand-up it's certainly a a common form but it's one that doesn't necessarily lend itself to as much laughter and i think i I wouldn't say mulaney gets any like grand like theory or really like wraps anything up in a nice tidy bow for the audience it's a bit interesting you know I, I you know comparing this i can't help but compare this to gerard carmichael's rothaniel last year which was another special that was a bit light on like the core jokes but was much more moving and coherent in its actual like narrative of like what gerard was telling us laney i don't know if he really gets super deep into that story you know, like he kind of sets you off right away about, hey, um, it's me, but my vibe's a bit different now. And you know, I used to be this, you know, energetic peppy showman on stage, and I wonder what caused that. And of course, he elaborates for about eighty minutes about his cocaine addiction and how that uh led to him having an intervention with many of his famous comic friends, and he was a lot of name drops throughout this special of his famous comedian friends that we all know of and tells us stories about going to rehab and things he did uh, at his lowest right before rehab and, uh, you know like giving an interview to GQ and having no knowledge or memory of giving that interview uh, sell it, uh, buying a brand new Rolex to then immediately pawn it off so he had cash to buy cocaine you know he tells us these stories and I think my 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 big takeaway though with Mulaney is like he tells us that he's so different and yet he to me he doesn't actually seem that different he's just being at least a little bit more transparent however I don't know how transparent he's actually being like he's just kind of telling us these stories of his past but he doesn't really get into how he feels about that past you know, like he'll make like off, you know, some jokes about, and that was a story I did tell you. Think about the stuff I didn't tell you, you know. But like he doesn't really peel back the curtain nearly as much as I think it's presented as being. And really, like over the course of the whole runtime of Baby J, it's perhaps like the curtain is pulled back the same level like the entire time. It's not like he slowly gets deeper and deeper, or darker and darker, or funnier and funnier. He just kind of tells you some recent stories and gets in and gets out. But the thing is, it's actually a long runtime. It's not like it, it's, it feels a bit long to me anyway.
you know, obviously there's funny stuff here, like comparing his sedative tolerance to Rasputin, I thought was like hilarious. Um, the the, the uh, namesake of the special Baby J and how uh, it's because him and two of his childhood friends were all named John having this pol- in, in, run in with the police. That was pretty funny. His story about lawyer, uh, doctors and how their levels to how good they are and how like uh, credible they can be. Shout out Dr. Michael. That was funny. Uh, what the Rolex guy told him, like, obviously, you may know you don't mix metals when it comes to wearing jewelry. That was quite funny. Honestly, I think the, the absolute funniest thing to me was right off the bat was kind of a throwaway line where John Mulaney says, quote, all the kids like Bo Burnham more because he's less problematic. I thought that was actually very self-aware and really funny to have John like reference, you know, like chief competition. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, yeah. You know, this, you know, you had music from the title screen from David Byrne. Alex Timbers directed this shot in Boston just two months ago. Yeah. It's morbid. And I guess like if there's one thesis that like John's getting into, it's how he needs attention. And he's always needed attention ever since he was young. You know, he was someone who perhaps prayed that one of his grandparents would die so that he could sit in the beanbag chair and people would pay, you know, like, you know, tell him to feel better at school and stuff like that. You know, it's like needing that attention and that fueling him, I suppose that's like the key thing. But there's not really much of an arc to this special. So I think like if you're invested in like Mulaney telling you about his, you know, issues, he does do that to a degree doesn't really tell you too much about how he feels about them though. i think that's kind of my hang up with this special so it's obviously a bit different in terms of the laughs than you'd expect from him but it's still kind of his general style on stage but an interesting special i think it's still a worthwhile thing to watch um just because it is a specific story and obviously we're very happy that you know seth myers and Nick Kroll and Pete Davidson and everyone else, Fred Armisen, checked in on John Mulaney and that intervention happened when it did and things like that. But yeah, I think uh, better days are ahead for John Mulaney. We can hope. But this is probably not going to be anyone's favorite special of his. But yeah, let me know. How did you feel about this Mulaney special? Was it introspective enough for you, despite the perhaps not as heavy laughter? And for more comedy special reviews, more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with my XXL 2023 freshman predictions. XXL freshman list is back up once again. And we got to talk about who's going to make that list. You know, I've been doing this the last seven years. Pretty experienced at this. I feel like I do a pretty good job. Get at least half right every year. It's challenging. Some years are harder than others. But uh, I like doing it. I think it's a very interesting thing to think about and what the list means to hip-hop has changed over time so i think it's very interesting to again continue to think about it so i'm going to get into who i think is most likely to make the list for 2023 but before i do i just want to talk about like what the xxl freshman list means at this point because that's definitely changed right it's something that's been around a long time since the late uh, 2000s and you know it's been a while since it really mattered in terms of artist uh, exposure and recognition in terms of really boosting and highlighting a upstart artist's career. 
that is what it used to be about. It is not necessarily uh, about that as much anymore, or at least in the sense that young artists don't need this heavy of a traditional media cosign as they once did. There are more methods to find success, find an audience than there used to be. Obviously, the reach of social media has played a long part of this the past few years, but also I think more recently, and it's obvious, but like the incredible discoverability that TikTok provides in terms of making artists go viral for one reason or another really speeds people's rise up. Now, of course, competition is harder than ever. It is hard to get found and it's hard to maintain success. We see lots of artists with TikTok hits that don't see those hits translate into full-length album sales or even album streams to the degree you would expect. So it's not like it's easier than it used to be. There are just other ways to find success. Nowadays, too, a lot of artists are operating outside that major label system, maybe only doing distribution deals or doing things on a project-by-project basis using something like United Masters. There are more ways to control your own destiny. And I'm going to talk about an artist who is doing exactly that. And that's been a common thing. Think of someone who made the list a few years back, like Annalie Chapa, who literally made the list without even being signed. You know, it's very impressive, but also was basically unheard of back in the day, which is not possible. But the other thing that's happened with the list more recently is it's a lot of established artists, or at least artists with label ties, um, in the sense that it's not really doing that showing you someone new someone who's really coming up and providing that artist with an audience but also helping all of us perhaps discover someone new most people that make this list have a sustained buzz have a hit at least on the internet in some regard and often have label connections or at least distribution um in a sense those artists don't really need this exposure and this type of cosign the way artists below them do but you know xxl this is a really big part of their business and they need people to engage with the list, engage with the freestyles and whatnot. So it makes sense that they try and gravitate towards people that have some kind of audience. So people are more in tuned in theory. There's of course opportunity to really pick more underground, more upstart artists to the benefit of everyone involved, but that's not always what we get. However, I still really enjoy how they go about it. I think for the most part, the methodology is pretty, pretty sound. It's pretty logical. So, Let's get into that. So let's go with, you know, usually they do like 10 to 12 artists they pick every year. I hardly know exactly how many they're going to go with. But we'll just go for around 10 and see what happens. So I'm going to go with the artists, or I'm going to start with the artists that I think are locks in terms of deserving of being on the list and should be on the list right now. Now, whether they accept the placement, of course, is always an open thing. You can go on Wikipedia. It's a pretty nice breakdown of artists that have declined the XXL list over the years. And that is a storied history. Lots of big artists, some of the biggest artists in rap, have turned this down from time to time. That happens. Sometimes it's pretty genuine. Like, the artist might not have necessarily been the right pick at the time. And then when the time, by the time the list comes back around the next year, that artist is so big and doesn't really feel the need to be on the list anymore. It feels like they already have ground that status and putting those other peers around them. Cardi B is an excellent example of this. By the time XXL came back around in 2018, Cardi had Bodak Yellow explode. She was above the list at that point. It happens. It'd be like that sometimes. So there are a few artists that you could technically apply that to. Not not, not to the degree of uh, Cardi, of course, but I think we could start with someone like, like Ice Spice. 
you know, Ice Spice is pretty obvious pick here. She is very deserving of the list because, you know, not that long ago, less than a year ago, it has not been that long. She's very much still in that freshman mold. Ice Spice, you know, exploded last summer with Munch, which became a gold single, a viral hit, and really established Ice Spice as the newest face of Brooklyn Drill. And since then, you know, she had that debut EP come out beginning of this year. And off that, you had uh, In Ha Mood uh, chart, you know, that was like almost top 50 in the U.S. And of course, uh, Boys Larry Part 2 with Pink Panthers, that's a top 10 hit uh, in the country. Actually, top three uh, is, is the peak. Just a massive track, right? You combine Pink Panthers and Ice Spice, two TikTok viral artists, put them together. Shockingly, it worked. You know, Ice Spice is really, I think, kind of finding that mold and she just does the Princess Diana remix with Nicki Minaj, and that goes number four, like a bunch of hits. And I say all that because even though it's been less than a year, this many hits, this many like top five hits, does she really need the list anymore? Who's to say? She's still quite young, so I'm rooting for her to be on the list for the sake of, I like rooting for the list to be good and re- reflective of history of rising stars in hip hop. It would be cool if she was on the list. Of course, I wouldn't be shocked if she said no, but we'll just assume she wants to do it and we'll say ice spice no brainer for sure moving right along someone of a similar thought would be a uh, glorilla of course another artist that has been around you know in the mainstream consciousness about a year less than a year uh glorilla of course uh memphis rapper uh blowing up uh, only 23 blowing up last summer with fnf which then parlayed her into that debut ep which featured Tomorrow 2 with that amazing Cardi B feature. Glorilla signed to CMG, Yo Gotti's label. Glorilla getting a Grammy nomination for Best Rap Performance with FNF, her debut single. It hasn't been that long, but she's already had so much success, so much co-signing. The Grammys, of all people, co-signing her. Another artist, I wouldn't be shocked if she said no. She's got a lot of big features she's been on at this point, too, so... Uh, I really like Glorilla. She is, a, I think, a really awesome example of Memphis rap, which is a really buzzing and hot sub-scene within Southern hip-hop. A big thing with the XXL list is we want to represent different genres and scenes and locations within hip-hop. And recognizing a scene like Memphis when you have a no-brainer star rising up out of nowhere the way Glorilla did last year seems like a no-brainer to me. But again, I wouldn't be shocked if she declined the placement, but we'll see. So moving on from there, I think there's two other like clear locks. One of those would be Armani White, who is 26 years old out of Philly. Not nearly as famous as anyone else I've mentioned thus far, but people probably know his songs, right? Billie Eilish, his single Billie Eilish, gold song, peaked at number 58. People know that one from TikTok. I think it's a pretty genuine song in general. He has a really... Uh, I think fun flow, nice like vocal inflection. He sounds pretty cool. And more recently, he has another TikTok hit with a uh, Goaded featuring Denzel Curry. Armani White's recently signed uh, to Def Jam, but doesn't have a uh, a project, a mixtape, or an album out on that yet. So that major label debut is coming. You know, he had that big VMAs performance where he performed Billie Eilish. So Armani White seems like someone who is quickly, quickly rising. And makes perfect sense to put on the freshman list. I hope he would uh, accept it because I think he's a really awesome sh- choice. The next artist that, and probably the last artist I'd say is like a clear lock in terms of someone to pick, would be Central C. 
Now, if you watched my video last year, I talked about Central C and thought he made perfect sense as a selection, and he didn't get picked. Uh, Central C has two mixtapes out. His last mixtape came out early 2022. It made perfect sense to pick him. He did not get picked. And since not getting picked, of course, Central C had a loose, his loose single, Doja, come out on Lyrical Lemonade, and Doja exploded online. You know, everyone knows the lines. Uh, how can I be homophobic? My bitch is gay. Someone tell Doja Cat. I'm trying to indulge in that. Amazing lines from like a sub-two-minute song. But Central C, even before that, the reason I thought he made sense to pick last year is that he's only 24 years old now, but he is the face of UK Drill. He is the hottest artist in hip-hop artist in the UK right now. He has been for about the past year or two. Tons and tons of hits in the UK. But even the fact that he got a song like Doja to cross over in the United States, other songs to smaller degrees like Let Go have found success here. He's getting a lot of attention with every single and like loose song he's putting out. And to have a UK artist, hip-hop artist, like really find like mainstream success in the United States, it's just so rare and so uncommon. It should be rewarded. You know, I saw Central C perform in concert about two months ago, and I thought it was really awesome. Um, and I've been a, been a fan since I heard him in 2022. And he's, I think, an interesting artist because he's not really signed to a label. He has some distribution deals, but he's been very tactful in how he, any of his from the reporting, any of his conversations with labels is like only for uh, specific regions. And he's trying to like really control his output. And it seems really intentional about the kind of deal he's trying to set up for himself. But not only is he a great example of UK drill, but he's also a great example of sample drill, which is like a trend that has affected all, 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 all subgenres of drill music. And, you know, think of uh, his song obsessed with you with the pink Panther sample. Uh, he has the passenger, uh, let her go, pull on his song, let go. Like He's doing a lot, I think, of really good things. And in general, I think he's a pretty awesome artist. So shout out Central C. He's someone, though, that if they picked him last year, it would have made perfect sense. Nowadays, right now, given how successful Doja was, you wouldn't be shocked if he turned it down. And that's just kind of like an LNXXL's part by, by unintentionally perhaps being late on him as a result. That's how it goes sometimes. But I would say Glorilla, Ice Spice, Armani White, and Central C, four locks, should they say yes. From here, I think, is where the list gets incredibly interesting and what makes the XXL list so fun. Obviously, there's the locks that should be on there for like the meritocracy of it all. But now at this stage, there's artists that have following, have success to various degrees, but are not super popular and would definitely get a big profile raised uh, or at least their profile increased substantially by being on this list. So we'll just kind of go through there. At this point, it's really just a mix of finding that mix, finding that genre blend and trying to represent various areas in hip-hop. So we'll see what we got here. In general, I think it's a, a more challenging year than others to predict. Sometimes it's quite easy to really figure out where they're going to zero in on. I think this is a pretty hard, hard, hard one. So I'm not super confident in any of these calls. You can make a case for all of these people, which I will do. But there's plenty of people you could pick that I'm not going to mention. But I'm going to go through another, like, 10 people right now. So I mentioned uh, UK Drill with Central C and Brooklyn Drill with Ice Spice. There's another great Brooklyn Drill candidate, and that would be... Or sorry, uh, Bronx, really Bronx Drill candidate. Now it would be B-Love out of New York City, 2022. Or, sorry, he's 22. I mentioned him last year. 
Uh, he did not get picked. His song My Everything is Gold. He's got a few EPs out. Not a lock, but I would not be shocked if he got picked. He's he's rising. Similarly, I mean, K-Flock is another great candidate out of the Bronx, but he's in jail, so I would say he's not going to get picked. But shout out B-Love. Nice pick. Um, I don't think he's going to make it. He wasn't on XSL's website, but the other another a UK artist that I want to note, note is Artie, who's a white rapper out of Brighton. Um, he's had some really cool songs, some cool success, particularly in the UK. And he's like a really fun energy and like personality. Perhaps too early for him, and obviously it's hard for UK artists to make it. But I I say shout out Artie just as a note. He's not going to get picked though. Someone I am going to pick though would be Jaleel, who's a Rhode Island rapper, twenty seven, a bit on the older side. Um, his song "Gnarly" featuring Armani White of all people, I think, is a lot of fun. Uh, just, he's a lot of energy. That's kind of his calling card. I song "Divin'" probably the most well known. There's an album coming next month that could help propel him onto this. I think he's a pretty cool pick. Kind of an interesting uh, genre blend that he brings. So I'm rooting for him. Uh, Cash Dami, only 18 years old. Someone who was in the mix last year for sure. Uh, he's from Vegas. Signed to Republic Records already. Has two albums and three tapes out despite his young age. And you know, his song's Reparations, Look in the Mirror, blew up a few years back. Uh, he kind of has that soundcloud rappy ethereal vibe that we know they'll probably represent that sound in some regard given how popular it is right now not the biggest fan of his but i think it's a pretty solid case that he could get he could get on someone else who i'm definitely picking for the list i would call a near lock probably my closest uh non-lock that's a lock that would be 22 year old mike dimes out of houston I think he's a fantastic rapper, so much so that I picked his second album, in Dimes We Trust, for my top 10 albums of 2022 last year at number 10. I think he's absolutely tremendous. He just goes so fucking hard. He has amazing flow. And of course, we know how hot Houston is as a scene with top-tier stars like Megan Thee Stallion and Travis Scott, but even more underground people like Max O'Cream. You know, we got to represent Houston. And Mike, man, like... I just think for someone who really has two projects out and some features, like he goes so hard. Songs like Home and No Trend and Backroom and Paparazzi. Man, I think he's just so fucking hard. And I, I love him. Uh, actually, we had we had a comment on the video last year, someone calling him out. I didn't even really know who Mike Dimes was at the time. Shout out whoever left that comment. You were uh, definitely up on it because uh, he definitely needs to be picked this year. Another artist that I picked uh, last year who didn't make it. I was kind of surprised to see him on XXL's website this year. That would be Kenny Mason, who is now 28 years old. Kenny Mason is re- really notable for making like alternative hip-hop, really blending in a lot of rock music, a lot of rock sounds between his Angelic Hoodrat mixtape and Angelic Hoodrat Supercut and then his uh, most recent project, Ruffs. Like, he is a really cool, engaging, genre-blending hip-hop artist. Really big high-profile feature on the JIT album last year with Dance Now. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's really great. And I was really surprised to see him on that list. But now that you put him on the list as something that you could vote for, saying he's still eligible to be a freshman, quote-unquote, you got to pick him. Kenny Mason's awesome. So I would love to see him there. Someone who I was surprised to not see on the list to be voted on would be Red Veil, who people have been like hyping up to be on a freshman list for some time. He's now only 19 years old. Another alternative hip-hop artist. He had a lot of music out now. Uh, perhaps a bit raw for my taste, but 
another very worthy selection uh, should they pick him. Okay, a few more picks. I want to shout out uh, Tia Corinne, who has kind of been rising for a few years now. Not super well known just yet. Probably best known for her song Freaky T. Um, there's so many great female MCs that XXL, thankfully, has been picking several every year at this point. That didn't used to be as easy to do. It definitely is now. So I would expect to see many female MCs, especially if the two obvious picks, like Ice Spice and Glorilla, decline. Someone like Tia Grimm will make a lot of sense on this list. But even separating that aside, she would be deserving of her own merits from North Carolina. Be a cool pick. Um, similarly, I want to shout out uh, Lola Brooke, who is a uh, Brooklyn artist who has kind of blown up very recently with her song Don't Play With It, which is an older song from 2021 that, of course, blew up recently on TikTok, as all songs do. She only has a handful of songs out, no uh, album or mixtape yet, just a bunch of singles. So in a sense, it's like kind of early to pick her, and she's pretty young. But on the other hand, getting in now would probably be a great look for XXL, should the Lowell Brook momentum continue. Um, that's a lot of New York artists I mentioned that won't pick that many, but just someone to think about. Uh, also, I want to shout out uh, La Tyler from Florida. We know how uh, hot and crazy it is down in Florida in terms of hip-hop, so it'd be nice to represent that scene again. Best known for a song, Backflippin', now signed to Atlantic Records. Atlantic could put him on the list pretty easily, you would think, uh, but shout-out him. also want to shout-out uh, J&R Choi, who is a Gambian artist based in the UK. Song, To the Moon, peaked at, I believe, 38 last year. Uh, it's a gold song now, of course, a TikTok hit. I don't know how many UK artists they necessarily go for, but Essential C says no. Here's a pretty nice consolation, I would say. And uh, lastly, I just want to note a few other people. Um, Maui, uh, Dro Kenji, who I know from his features with Mike Dimes, kind of has a Juice World sound, Juice World vibe in terms of a melodic hip-hop sound, which is not really represented with any of these other picks. would be an interesting selection. And also Too Rare, who I think is a pretty sneaky pick for this list. Too Rare kind of gives you that sound that everyone would associate with Little Uzi Vert's I Wanna Rock, which is one of the biggest hip-hop songs of the past few months. Would not be shocked to hear that one on there. But yeah, I think that's it. Um, in terms of my locks, like I said, Central Seek, Lil Ice Spice, Armani White, easy ones. Then from there, I would say B-Love, Jaleel, Cash Dami, Kenny Mason, Mike Dimes, T. Corinne, and we'll go with La Tyler. But again, it's hard. It's hard to knock it down. A lot of people I didn't mention. Leave a comment. Let me know who do you think should make it. Are you really pulling for Baby Drill? For example, there's so many selections. You know, can't you can't uh, pick everyone. But let me know who you're pulling for, because I think that's what makes it so fun. Is there's so many great selections, and that's why hip hop is the only genre of music that can do something like this, because no other genre supports this many upstart artists all doing their own thing all paving their own lanes and that's what makes it so fun so leave a comment let me know what you think of my picks what are your picks when the list does come out i will react to that of course and of course i review hip-hop on here all the time so for more of that subscribe and i'll see you next time yeah.